You're listening to TechNest, the PropTech Podcast. In each episode, you'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. Discover market opportunities, interesting data, growth tactics, and trends driving the industry forward. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Hot off the presses, we've got an exciting episode for you all today. Bill Martinier, he's the CTO and co-founder of Avenue One. You may not have heard of them. They're relatively a young company, only three years in the business, but check this out. They just recently closed a $100 million round of funding in this venture capital environment. Uh, pretty incredible. But what they're building, property technology service platform marketplace for institutional owners, buyers, and sellers of residential homes, providing that access to actually buying and selling portfolios of properties. And one of the challenges in owning larger portfolios for institutional investors is not just the buying, it's not just the selling, it's the actual service. Bill details why their business it lives and breathes on the partnerships that they are able to create and maintain on the local level and how that combined with their technology and their savviness in operations is actually what's driving the success of their business platform to be that the supply chain, if you will, and access to the SFR space for institutional investors. Let's go ahead, jump in, hear what he's got to say. Hey, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, Excited to have you here. And I I see, uh, I know we got chatting a little bit before the show. You're hanging out in good old Pennsylvania. You look like you're an old farmhouse. It is, in fact, an old farmhouse. It's an old, uh, it's an old farmhouse. It's built like a, uh, could take a cannon shot. It's got uh, big old, big <laughs> about seven acres of property around it. Uh, a lot of wood, a lot of deer. So, have you nice explored the basement to see if there's catacombs down there? There's not catacombs. There are cave crickets. Um, it's a, it's very different from, uh, from where our offices are up in uh, in Manhattan in, in Soho. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting back and forth between really bucolic Pennsylvania and kind of the heart of Soho. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great way to jump into this. Uh, so Bill Martinier is the CTO and co-founder of, I would say, is a rather quiet company. I think you'd agree in PropTech Avenue One. You're just coming off the heels of raising $100 million. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, Avenue One is a prop tech company. They're primarily focused on creating a service platform and marketplace for institutional owners, buyers, and sellers in the residential real estate space. So as a way to jump into this, let's unpack that. What does that even mean? Sure. Um, So my partner, uh, Ryan Stroker, and I started this up. Gosh, uh, about three years ago now. It's only been three years, um, and we met in kind of in, in kind of an interesting way. Uh, we are both people who've been, you know, career Wall Street folks. Um, I worked for hedge funds. I worked for large large banks. Um, you know, uh, Ryan was in was in mortgage banking for a long long period of time, um, and we both refocused on on real estate. So Ryan was working at Amherst, um, and when I hooked up with him through a friend. 
Um, I was working at Compass Real Estate. I did all of the enterprise technology at Compass. Um, and that was a real change for me. I, I left my cushy hedge fund job to go uh, and do something with a, with a startup like Compass. And, um, you know, there's a couple of interesting things that we started to talk about. Um, he was with Amherst and he was used to uh, real estate companies, REITs that had a lot of balance sheet exposure. Um, one of the reasons why we did what we did was not to have balance sheet exposure. We're purposely asset light. So we are a platform that institutional investor, investors buy through. We're fee-based. We're not performance-based. We don't charge or promote. So we are a, we're essentially a service supply chain that allows institutional investors that may not be involved in SFR to get involved with SFR in a pretty turnkey uh, in a pretty turnkey fashion, but still manage their their portfolios directly. Um, as an offshoot to this to this idea of being asset light, to being a real estate company that owns no real estate, we also looked at it and said, hey, you no, know, there's an awful lot of services that are around the SFR asset. So an SFR really isn't an SFR. It's not the house is just kind of table bets, right? So it's really the services that make it a performing asset. It's the ability to transact. It's the ability to select the right property. It's the ability to renovate to a certain scope that maximizes the rent. And it's the ability to manage the property uh, over the long term. So we kind of looked at that and said, hey, you know, this is an interesting business. This idea of being capital light is cool. So we're a real estate company that has no real estate. What do you say we do all these services without any labor? And so what we adopted was this network service model where we've really partnered with a lot of these local entrepreneurs that are local, that really know the markets that they're doing their business in, that are successful in the markets where they're doing, uh, where they're doing their business. We, uh, we partner with them in a pretty deep way. We integrate with them in a pretty deep way. Um, we coordinate the service supply chain between these different communities. Um, we handle payments over this. We do quality assurance over the top of this. And, you know, we're able to kind of cobble together an overall end-to-end -end, uh, you know, service supply chain around these core assets, which are SFR. So that's kind of what we are and what we're doing inside this space. And the technology and, you know, the theses and the way that we're going to evolve after that are kind of based on those, on those core theses. I think one of the things that's been highlighted the last few years really uh, in an interesting way is that you can't it's not enough and you kind of hit the nail on the head here it's not enough just to buy the the property because it yeah. has to have a methodology for how are we going to get repairs done or how are we going to fix it up to get the rents to where they need to be it's not simple as just you know raise the rents and and it's good as it is um and then to how do you buy a whole lot of these why would someone be selling them if they were performing where they need to be performing you know, at a certain rate. I mean, I think there's significant more challenges to, to handling that. So I, uh, I want to dive into that a little bit. I want to start with first, though, um, you know, the, the term institutional. I have seen reports where basically institutional company are used interchangeably. And they'll basically say it's like if it's an LLC, it counts as that. How do you define what is institutional? Not, not by us. So, so we really come from an institutional space. So I worked for hedge funds in the past, large banks in the past. When we're talking about institutions, we're talking about very large pension funds. Um, we're talking about very large real estate companies, very large private equity firms, um, mm -hmm. banks, other things like that, that, you know, 
don't really get out of bed for, you know, $100 million of investment. So we're looking for very, very large buyers in this space um, that are typically more involved with commercial um, or multifamily. Yeah, and then that that makes a lot of sense as to why then be the the, the supply chain and work fee based versus uh, another methodology to to charging there. Is that is that correct? That's that's correct. What a lot of these investors need is they need exposure, so it's really a matter of scale and allowing them the the platform that's going to be able to do that at scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of backtrack a little bit because you talked about it in your career, but you know, you weren't originally a, a real estate guy. What, what was the catalyst to be like, I want to, I'm going to go towards real estate because you had the tech background, you've worked in private equity, but then you, what was the catalyst for real estate specifically? Well, um, so the catalyst for real estate, so I've always had some interest in, interest in real estate. I've dabbled myself in the past, um, you know, and uh, so that's something that's, I've, I've had a longstanding interest in. Um, I think what's really interesting about real estate coming from the background that a lot of us do in Avenue One is real estate is an asset class and it's a massive asset class. I mean, if you look at the addressable market of single family home rental, um, mm-hmm. you're talking about what, a $3 trillion addressable, uh, addressable market. Um, it's giant. And that's just the standing, uh, the standing stock that's there right now. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a relatively immature asset class in that it really doesn't trade like what you see mortgages trading, public securities trading. But the size of this asset class is such that it, it feels inevitable that there'll be a professionalization inside this inside this asset class. And there will be kind of a script that we've seen with other asset classes um, towards becoming more and more mature. So when I look at this, I look at, a, at a, I look at an asset class that's hard to transact, has a lot of frictions that are involved in it. Um, the closing times are really, really long. You'd never see that kind of stuff on Wall Street. Um, you know, you don't really have a standardized vocabulary to talk about these investments, but these investments are as big as any of these other, any other investments that these firms are making, but there's not really standards that are in here. So, uh, you know, when I really get myself pumped up, I think about, man, this is, this is like a nascent asset class. And this is something where we're going to be able to get in there and do some smart things because mm-hmm. we can kind of see where the puck's going on this stuff. Um, we can do some really smart things around this to start to achieve better liquidity for this asset class and to start to bring better professionalization inside inside this, uh, this infrastructure. So I think a lot of us kind of, res- uh, kind of respond to that. Coming from the world of Wall Street, looking at, a, at, a, at an asset class that has some kind of natural longstanding frictions and thinking, man, what's this thing going to look like when it's mature and what kind of opportunities exist along that spectrum to maturity? Yeah. I love some of the, um, the differences of terminology in real estate from across the country. I mean, I'm originally from outside of Philly. I've lived and I worked as a real estate agent in the Northwest, North of Seattle. I spent two years in Chicago. Now I'm in the great, wonderful Silicon Prairie of South Dakota and like there's little things like a row home. You will not believe how many people west of the Mississippi have no concept what it means when you say oh, row. They have no idea what a row home is. A trinity. Um, a what? A trinity. You know what a trinity is? I don't is know that. What's a trinity? A trinity is the small uh, the small uh, brownstones in Philly that are just one room stacked on top of each other. That's a very Philly thing. Oh, I was, I've never been exposed to that term. See, I just learned a new one. Yeah. 
Yeah, there we go. I, and duplex for me is very frustrating because in, in the Northwest, that's what they call it. They were calling twins duplex as well as two unit duplexes. But I'm like, a twin is a twin. It's not a duplex unless it's actually zoned a duplex. But, you know, that's a whole nother. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on that. Like, you know, real estate is really local. It's like stubbornly local. There's stubborn, mm-hmm. like very localized terms. There's a lot of business norms that are local to just one very small pocket of the country. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that's there that, you know, is necessarily local. So, you know, we have a big underwriting staff that they're, they're all over the place, but a lot of them are, are up in Manhattan. And when we started buying in the counties north of Dallas, um, some of our partners came back to us and said, hey, listen, you know, there's a certain vintage of home you want to be a little bit careful careful of because after the Dust Bowl, the uh, the soil didn't tamp down so well. And there's a certain vintage of home in these counties that all have settling problems, and all have foundation problems. Yeah. We've never known this stuff. You know, and this is the real strength of this model that because we're coupling with these these local entrepreneurs who really know the market, we get information like that. And we can do a lot with that kind of information. I feel like a lot of prop techs try to generalize rather than localize. And mm. this is kind of taking the other side of that where we're realizing and we're and and you know, we're accepting the fact that real estate is as local as it is, and then trying to figure out uh, synergies and, and efficiencies that can be achieved by integrating this already organic network of service providers that, that exist everywhere. I think that's a really important point. I mean, I, I can tell you on no shortage of counts of probably 15 to 20 different founders I've talked to where they've launched in a city like New York or San Francisco or LA. And, and, and part of their thesis was if it works here, it can work anywhere. Um, but you, you, you're not, you're, you're absolutely right that certain building materials, how things were built at a certain time period, and then they stopped. And unless you know the local on that, that, that could cause it, especially when you're doing anything amount of rehab at scale, uh, right. you know, you're, you're going to run into the same problems over and over. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you, you guys have, you know, a very significant part of your business is built on establishing partnerships. And this is going to be part of how the business succeeds or fails. I mean, you could have amazing tech and then be horrible at building partnerships. And, you know, it, it, you know, you still wouldn't be able to see the success. So like, what are some of the unique challenges in trying to find local providers who can then work at the speed you guys are working with, adopt the tech that you're putting in place and see the light of the systems that you're looking to operate under? You know, this is a big part of our problem because we have a bunch of these different networks. So if you think about what we're doing, we're using local brokers, uh, real estate brokers, to handle our negotiations. We're using a range of different title companies to handle our title search and closing. We're handling, we're using with local inspectors to scope the, scope the renovation and to build that cost back into our models. We're using local general contractors to actually do the work we're using, uh, you know, local and regional property managers to actually operate the properties. And we kind of sit on top of this and give guidance over, the, over, the, over all of that. Um, all of these different networks have some, have some very different technical sophistications. 
-hmm. So if you're dealing with a title company, you're going to be doing, you know, RESTful API calls into their software. You're going to be integrating with like a Qualia or something like that. Um, when you're dealing with uh, renovation partners, in some cases, you're going to be dealing with like eight guys riding around in a truck in Birmingham, Alabama. So these are very different ways that you need to engage with these with these different communities. Um, I think that's a real strength of what we've been able to do. From a technical standpoint, um, we've created an integration architecture and mm -hmm. a standard vocabulary around SFR. So a common data model around SFR. And what we do with a lot of our technology is we take the way that an individual system or an individual partner works with their data, and we can mm -hmm. translate that into our common model. And because we have this common model at the, at the center, kind of like a Rosetta Stone, we can make sense of all of these different operators kind of feeding together into an integration framework. So that's super, super important to what we're doing. Sometimes we'll engage with a partner through a RESTful API integration. Sometimes we'll give them an app. Um, and sometimes we'll do a combination of these things. But we've more than anything else, we need to normalize the terminology around the SFR business in a way that is mappable from all of these different business models and all these different systems with which we integrate. So that's a big deal um, mm -hmm. because we want to partner with these folks, but we want to invest in them so that they are more successful. If we have a renovation partner in Raleigh and they're doing fantastic business, we want to do everything we can to allow them to expand their business. We'll, you know, we'll do a lot of different things for these folks because if they succeed, if their businesses grow, if they can scale, if they keep their work quality up, then everybody wins with that. Um, we've had a lot of examples where we've had a guy and a crew on a real estate, uh, on, a, uh, on a, a general contractor, um, wanting to move to a new town that we were operating in. And we know him from an existing relationship. He goes to Newtown. He starts off his own shop, and he's made it to be a successful business by the amount of uh, by the amount of revenue we're about to we're able to flow to these guys. Wow! So it kind of works really well. Um, we've done no marketing, uh, like you said before. We're very quiet about this. Um, we've done no marketing. The way that we've spread to now over five hundred different partnerships with small businesses across the country. It's word of mouth, man. It's, you know, we do have staff that are on the ground. These are people who are fairly well connected, but we try and be real plain dealers with these guys. We can pay our renovation partners net two once their, uh, once their, uh, their quality check is complete. So we understand that that's important to them. We understand that that speed is a big deal if they're floating that on their credit card or their own money. And yeah. we try and address that kind of stuff. So like everybody's a partner, right? You talk to a software vendor, you talk to anybody, you talk you talk to SAP or Oracle and they're your partner. And it's like the, the least genuous thing in the whole wide world. We actually mean it. We want to be your partner. We want you to succeed because if you succeed as a small businessman in your, in your area, we can trust mm -hmm. you and we can do volume through you, then man, you know, it helps us too. So everybody wins. Yeah, yeah. yeah even just what you just mentioned about like paying contractors, you know, within such a fast time frame, that in of itself... You know, I, I have friends still back on the East Coast running contracting businesses. And like, you know, they, they're they buying from the supply shop on a 60-day line of credit and hoping that they're going to get paid out in the jobs because in oh. the meantime, they're still paying their employees. 
you know, there's yeah. no delay on paying the employees. So I've, I've seen it before. And this is one of the things that hits contractors. Anytime there's a law in work, yeah. you know, it's yeah. a cash flow crunch for them. They have to get the supplies, they have to pay the payroll, and then they're just waiting on getting paid. You That's know. right. So we want this to be, you know, as good for these guys as we possibly can. We want for mm -hmm. the, the interactions that they have with us to be as frictionless as they can. Yep. And man, we want to get these guys paid as quickly as we can, because we know that that's a, that's a real pressure point. A lot of these guys get upside down on some of the work that they do and they yeah. shouldn't have to do that. You mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned qualia, like if you're working with title companies, but like, you know, for instance, property managers, there's no shortage of tech tools that have been distributed. There's the incumbents that have had a grip on the market for some time. How does that impact your product roadmap and thinking about what tech stack is already in place with the property manager and how you're able to effectively partner with them. You know, we love these spaces like, uh, like, like the qualities of the world, um, where there is a very large vendor that has a lot of the, the market share, because for us, that's just one integration. And then we can pick up other partners that are on the same, on the same software. So that's kind of, that's kind of unique. Um, so that's, that's great when, when we have that kind of stuff. Um, where we have other challenges like um, scheduling across these different uh, these different networks, we'll produce mm -hmm. you know custom software to handle that that stuff. And so, you know, the market for any one of these solutions is less important for us. Um, we would you know it makes it easier if there's somebody who owns the the large market share, but mm -hmm. we're flexible enough in the middle to be able to integrate. Um, and so it doesn't really affect product roadmap. You know, if you think about what we're doing from a business standpoint, we're essentially an integrator, right? So mm -hmm. we're sourcing these houses, we're getting the capital partners in, um, we're, you know, assume we're getting the capital partners, which is the buy side of this network to transact with a fairly complex set of transactions with all these different service providers. Um, so a lot of what we're doing is integration. So from a buyer's standpoint, it's just Avenue One that's doing this stuff. From a seller's standpoint, from a property manager or from the, the standpoint of a, of a renovation partner, um, you know, it's, it's a coordinated effort. And all these things kind of have to line up like a supply chain. You can't renovate a house until you own the house. You know, you can't renovate the house until you close on the house. You can't operate mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. house until you've renovated, you've closed on the house and renovated on, and renovated the house. Yeah. So like these things need to be coordinated together. So a lot of what we do is integration. And a lot of the technology that we put in place is around this integration thesis. So we do have software that we roll out that has a UI, kind of SaaS-based software. But if you really look at the core of what we do, it's to mm -hmm. normalize data around the SFR space and then to put integrative technologies in there so that we can orchestrate um, this pretty complex service supply chain. I love it. I want to I shift a little bit, talk a little bit about trends, uh, obviously impacting uh, your customers. Uh, first one is uh, like the inescapable the interest rate environment that we're in. You know, it wasn't much more than a year ago that money was still really, really cheap. Sure, sure. And, and obviously that, that has since changed. Uh, I think I saw like the low point today for consumer mortgages, it's like 6.8. Obviously there's more to this than just what the consumer mortgage uh, rates are looking at or looking like. What are you hearing from investors? Are they 
as active? Are they waiting out things? Are they selling off? There's a lot of there's a lot of waiting out. There's there's some there's some divestiture that's going on as well. Luckily for us, we kind of do it both ways. We're kind of like an we're kind of like a sell side bank where we can get you in a position and then we can get you out of a position too. So we'll mm-hmm. broker uh, portfolios out either to the consumer or to another another partner that has lower cost of capital. And a lot of the play, a lot of the the folks that we deal with have relatively low cost of capital. Um, since we're operating out of New York, and because of our backgrounds, you know, we do have a lot of connectivity to some very very efficient capital, um, mm-hmm. and so that's that's an advantage. So the business model itself, being able to buy and sell, and the connectivity to um, uh, to this very efficient capital, kind of protects us to some extent, as does the model itself where we don't have massive payroll that we're kind of typing, we're typing around because of this network model. So it's less of a big deal of a big deal for us. Now, of course, it's slowed down. Everybody's slowed down. Um, and, you know, we put out a um, we put out some articles a, a few weeks ago about what our view is on what the um, uh, what the future is likely to hold. I think in general, what we're thinking is that um, we will start to see institutions beginning to re-engage um, with with buying uh, mm-hmm. in the shorter term, um, and uh, and that's that's welcomed. Um, we are sensitive that the rate environment is going to stay kind of where it is, but we also have this persistent problem of the of the housing sh- the housing shortage. Um, I forget what the the latest figure was. It was like three hundred thousand uh, three hundred thousand units um, uh, deficit for the creation of family hassle. Um, oh, for affordable housing in the so, middle class. It was like, yeah. yeah. So you've got this crunch where the rates are going to stay high, but the demand is also is also very high. Um, and that might result in kind of a sideways market for a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I and I, I follow, I keep up with Altos Research and Mike Simonson on trying to find like, you know, where we're at on a, a week by week basis on, on the inventory. And, you know, the, the reality is it's just, you know, it, I think all the people who were saying housing crash last year who finally feeling vindicated are uh, still going to have to wait till next year to see if their predictions come true. Because if the inventory doesn't increase and there remains appetite, you know, it's tough to envision where prices just suddenly collapse Yeah, and, yeah. and go uh, to the basement. That's our view as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for, for what, it, for what it's worth for those listening, if you're not following Altos, I don't get paid for this. It's not, it's not it's a free endorsement, I guess, if you will. But like Altos is great for following the weekly reports they publish on Twitter every every Monday. Uh, Mike is is pretty great at that. Uh, all right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about regions. You guys are kind of spread across the U.S. The Sun Be- Sun Belt has gotten all the love and the headlines, and in the last few years. So I'm going to start with the Sun Belt first. You know, uh, is it is it still hot? Is it cooling off? What's happening down there? It's kind of like the rest of the rest of the country. So um, it's hard to say where the focus is going to be. We're very opportunistic. So um, because we're also involved in portfolio buying and selling, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we'll enter a market to service a portfolio that 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 uh, that's that's brought. Uh, Okay. Uh, One of the advantages of our model is that we can enter a market and begin operating really quick, like very quickly um, because all we really need to do there is hire somebody who's familiar with that market that's got a pretty good Rolodex, establish these partnerships, 
get them kind of onboarded, do the uh, do the due diligence over these guys to make sure that, you know, they're kind of up to institutional stuff and off we go. We've been able to open open markets really, really quickly in the past. So a lot of what we're doing is opportunistic. Um, you know, the SFO markets continue to be the SFO markets. Everybody's focused there. Um, you know, you've got concentration in those areas. So mm-hmm. you know, with concentration, you have an assumption of liquidity. So if you want to get out of those positions, you can, you know, the assumption is that you can sell to somebody else who's playing in that space. So, yep. Um, yep. so you know, a lot of this stuff is kind of, I think, going to be more persistent um, than, than, than shifting. And, 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 you know, like you said, you, you can take, you, you may choose a market to move into because of the opportunity, like as a portfolio, but when, when that's not the case and you're looking at the map, what, what is, you know, this is, I understand is like, this is a little bit of like the, the secret sauce, some of the, your competitive advantage, what goes into looking at the, the different markets before you decide, Hey, this is where we want to open up. Yeah. So there's there's two ways that we that we kind of address that. So we do use a lot of machine learning. We do use a lot of big data analysis to get an understanding of what a market's going to be. Um, we also have these these local people who are on the ground, who you know, aside from all this technical sophistication that we can do with the data that's available to us, we can also just ask these guys. Um, what's going on inside your inside your market, and sometimes they have a much better sense of what's going inside the market than what the data might be able to might be able to show. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely single sauce. This the secret sauce, um, this kind of connectivity down to the local market, um, our ability to analyze trends uh, using a lot of the machine learning techniques that we've that we've developed. I think is a big part of what we're able to do in terms of. Uh, targeting where we're going to go, um, you know, and when we're up and up and running, the other big part of our data secret sauce is the fact that we're big operators. So it's very hard to know a market unless you're actively buying in a market. Mm. Um, so because we're doing the volumes that we're doing, we have a much better sense of where the market is uh, at any given point in time. This is especially important in a fast-moving market, like we saw um, towards the end of last year, before we started to see things kind of kind of cramp down. Um, mm-hmm. Because you know, if you think about it, the the data sources that are out there that you can buy, they're they're actually quite delayed. So if I go to mm-hmm. buy a house, mm-hmm. you know, the mark to market or the valuation happens at the point that that bid is accepted. The bid then goes off through a closing process that's 30, 45 days, and then it gets reported to a county office, and then it comes into a, a data consolidator. You know, it's not uncommon to be trading off of data that's three months old by that point. Mm. But if you're working through a platform that's, that's doing volume, you actually have much more timely data as a feature of the volume that's being done. So it's kind of a nice virtuous cycle that, take, that kicks in as well. Gotcha. gotcha. All right. Uh, I'm going to gear up for the bottom segments of the show here, but before we move on to those, uh, kind of a, a, a fairly large question, but pretty simple at the same time. Why is now the right time to be building Avenue One? Now's the time, the right time to be building Avenue One because it, institutional investment continues to focus on this space. Um. And there's not a lot of great solutions inside this space for these allocators. Um, there are existing REITs that exist there. 
there are mm-hmm. some players now that are giving direct uh, direct access to running a portfolio, but there's not an awful lot that's there. You know, again, you can kind of see where the pucks are going on this stuff. If you look at multifamily or if you look at commercial, you see institutional involvement, you know, up around the 50% mark. When you look at SFR investment, you see institutional involvement, you know, generously around the 3% mark. So there's a gap there that's likely to close. And so, you know, the environment is what it is right now, but the longer term environment, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And that is a vacuum. The difference between 3% and 50% is a big vacuum and mm. Avenue one is there to, to fill that, that void. Got it. All right, Bill, we're going to have a little bit of fun here. We're going to transition down to for the future for the future is the segment when I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best prediction based on the following four questions. Are you ready to play? I am ready to play. All right, let's do this. First one on for the future. What does Avenue one look like one year from now? Everyone looks like a year from now, uh, it's it's bigger, it's larger. Um, we're in more markets, and we are even more engaged on the sell side of our business. So we're doing more brokerage of large portfolios. We're doing it with greater efficiency. We're likely to be a much larger company. Um, you know, again, we're only 36 months old. We've been mm-hmm. profitable almost from the get-go. Um, we hope to continue that. Uh, and continue to grow at the same at the same pace. So, you know, I would expect in a year from now our our door count is actually pretty is actually quite high, and we've got even more involvement from a lot a number of big players in capital markets. All right, all right. This is a different type of question. Which is likely to be more true than the other? We got two statements here. Okay, more institutional yeah. players are going to enter into the SFR space, or the current institutional players in the SFR space will expand their footprint. Um, so it's either or it's probably both, right? So uh, especially if the if the if the credit environment starts to starts to shift. So there are already big incumbents inside this space. It only makes sense that they're going to expand if the market conditions are correct. Um, mm-hmm. However, if Avenue One is successful in opening the door and allowing a conduit between institutional investors and large institutional investors and these local operators to exist, then I would predict, and I'm betting on the fact that there is a wider set of market participants that start to play inside the space. All right. Number three on For the Future, what's one industry trend you think will continue, but you wish would go away? Um. So real estate, there's lots of vested interests, especially around the the transaction process. Um, You see a lot of prop tech that's trying to disrupt that. But if you look strategically about the amount of vested interests in some of this stuff, it's Mm -hmm. likely to be very static. You read about this stuff all the time. We're going to be remaking the real estate industry this way and that way. I think that that is eventual, but a rather a rather rough road. Um, so I would imagine that, that that's going to stay that's going to stay in place for some time, and the innovation is going to come in from from other avenues. We've kind of talked about this a little bit. You put it in better words than I've had, but I, you know, I remember having this conversation with Clayton Collins of Housing Wire last year at Blueprint Conference, and 
Um, I, I summarized it as like we're starting to see where the noise is, the volume of it is coming down. Now that the venture capital markets have tightened a bit, they're not getting the valuations. They're not getting the the additional funding or bridge rounds that they that they need to keep going. And I think now we're getting to the point of getting down to brass tacks. What's really going to move the needle? What can actually gain adoption? So um, yeah, I tend yeah. to align to that. All right, last one on For the Future. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? Um, well, I think that the lock on the SFR market uh, by large REITs, large vertically integrated REITs, is going to is going to loosen. I think that we're not the only one that's innovating inside this space to allow uh, investors to uh, to invest inside this space uh, more directly. So I would imagine there's going to be more direct investment inside this space as these uh, infrastructural uh, business models start to take hold. So I think that that's going to make a big, a, big, a big difference. And I think that's actually easier to disrupt than the vested interests around transactioning. Yeah. All right. We're going to jump to the last three here, Bill, this is so the listeners get to know just a bit more about you. First yeah, yeah. one is, what are you reading? Um, so like everybody else, I'm fascinated with, with, uh, with generative AI right now. Um, I'm kind of a wonk. So, uh, the book that I'm in the middle of right now is, um, one on, uh, deep learning, adaptive computation and machine learning. Um, it's all the mathematics behind, uh, behind large language models and a lot of this, uh, this generative stuff. So, uh, I'm, I've been pretty familiar through Sounds the Sounds tough. <laughs> It's a lot of freaking math, man. Um, it's it's good. It's distracting. Um, you know, through the years, I've done a lot of this stuff, just kind of more traditional machine learning. Uh, but, so it's interesting to see how it's starting to leap over into the generative field. And a lot of the same disciplines and a lot of the same maths kind of hold there. But it's it's interesting to see it leap forward in the way that it's, that it's, uh, that it's happening. It's always good to get an understanding of the math underneath this stuff. It gives you an intuition about what's really there and what's, you know, what's air. Fair enough. Number two, who are you learning from? Um, so I learn all the time from our partners. Um, these guys who are actually successful real estate entrepreneurs inside on the ground in their different regions. Um, like you were saying before, you know, it's amazing just the terminology differences that exist. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm in awe of some of these guys who, you know, have been able to put together uh, a business that's super successful um, in the, in their area, and they just know how to do their business really, really super well. Um, some of the property managers that I've gotten to know are just really super efficient guys. Um, you know, just throughout that whole network, there are some really amazing entrepreneurs that you know I don't think get the kind of limelight that people who end up you know on podcasts talking about unicorn companies do. Um, but the uh, the actual sure. brass tacks on the ground stuff is uh, is is to me where I'm I'm most impressed, where I learn the most, and kind of what I'm inspired by. Yeah, and well, you you alluded to it, and that's the final question here, Bill. Is what are you, what inspires you? Um, yeah, so same answer. These guys who are operating on the ground with such efficiencies, you know, without the advantage of, of technology. Um, all the time who are able to pull off these businesses and like, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, it's their own invention that they, that they're, that they're running. 
it's successful. Sometimes it's multi-generational businesses um, that, that they're running. These guys are inspiring. These guys are real business people. Um, and I think we do well to borrow a page from their very practical, very grounded uh, playbook. Bill, it's been a blast. Thanks for coming on the show, sharing about Avenue One. Uh, sorry that uh, we're going to have to make Avenue One less quiet and tell more people oh, about what you're what you're doing here. Shame. <laughs> Before we close out, for those who want to get in touch with you and or learn more about Avenue One, where do they go? How do they do that? Um, you can go to avenue1.com and there's ways that you can uh, connect through there. Um, and uh, I can also provide kind of a, a uh, some links to you that you can share afterwards. There we go. And we'll put them into the bio section. Uh, you go to technest.io. You can look up the episode here with Bill and you'll be able to get those links there. Um, Bill, hopefully I'll see you around. Enjoy Pennsylvania for me while you're there. Get some Rita's water ice. That's yeah. that's the local terminology you got to ask people about because I know people are hearing this and they're like, what is water ice? And that's I can't explain it to you. You just got to go have it. Yeah, you got to experience it. <laughs> we'll see you later. All right, man. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to TechNest, the PropTech podcast. Find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode on technest.io. You can get future episodes delivered to your ears directly by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast apps. Follow TechNest on social media to stay up to speed on new developments, resources, and announcements in PropTech. Your support is greatly appreciated. There's two ways you can directly support this podcast. Share episodes you find interesting and then leave a review of the show in the App Store. From Nate and the TechNest team, thanks for listening.